Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am so glad that you could tune in because today is going to be a great conversation with our guest. It's not every day that we can bring environmental protection and social justice into one episode. Sometimes those kind of end up being separate topics, but we're going to be talking about fair trade. And that's a topic that brings both of those important, vital issues together in a special way. And whether you know everything there is to know about fair trade or whether it's kind of a new topic to you, by the end of this episode, you will be up to speed because our guest today is Dana Geffner, and she is the executive director of the Fair World Project. And they've recently released a report that we're going to be talking about. And Part of what they're doing is calling on Costco, a major retailer, to use their leverage to help support cocoa farmers. And we're going to talk about that issue, but then we're also going to be talking about all the different types of fair trade certifications and labels that you might see when you're buying products. And Dana's going to help us understand what those labels mean and maybe help us figure out which labels we want to choose as our go-to labels. So welcome to Go Green Radio. Dana, I am so glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Jill. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to be here to talk about the work that we do and more specifically talk about fair trade and how we can all work in solidarity with farmers and workers around the world. I love it. I want to begin by having you talk with our listeners about the plight of West African cocoa farmers. Tell us about the impact that low prices and climate change are having on their livelihood. Yeah, it's a really great um, place to start. Um, West African cocoa farmers, their plight today is pretty dire um, for several reasons. Um, One, stemming from cocoa prices being tied to the commodity markets, which, um, as a lot of people know, is notoriously volatile, um, and it does not reflect the farmer's cost of production at all. So in 2017, world cocoa prices plunged and really have yet to recover, recover. Um, and climate change now is really only making the problem worse. Um, so through our research, we have found that 74% of farmer household income in West Africa stems from the profit on cocoa, yet they're only receiving 37% of a living income in rural areas in West Africa. Um, so that's pretty dire. But then in terms of climate change, um, on the Ivory Coast and in Ghana, which um, many people may know are the two largest cocoa-producing countries in the world, that in 12 years, by 2030, only 12 years from now, it's going to be too hot to grow cocoa, destroy, destroying the livelihoods of 90% of approximately 2 million small cocoa farmers in West Africa. Um, So I'm sure we're going to have the chance to discuss the differences in fair trade certification standards, as you mentioned, later in the Mm -hmm. show. But I quickly just wanted right now to um, briefly mention one, um, Fair Trade America, which is one of the certifiers that we'll be discussing, just raised raised cocoa prices as part of their standards by 20%. Um, so that's it's really important. And one of the reasons they did this was because they're a farmer-led certification, which I want to go into as well. That's a really important distinction when it comes to looking at certification. Um, and so, and it's because these farmers understand themselves 
that while climate change is seriously threatening cocoa production, without fair prices for farmers, most will be forced to leave farming before climate change's um, impact fully hits. So raising prices at this point is really the only option. You know, this this actually was brought home to me really clearly a few weeks ago. Um, my church was selling fair trade chocolates for advent calendars, and one of our priests is from Ghana. And he said his aunt owns a cocoa farm, and he said, I've never tasted the chocolate that comes from the cocoa that, that we produced on my aunt's farm. And he said, these fair trade chocolate, you know, advent calendars um, are from are made with uh, cocoa from Ghana. And he said, I can't wait, wait to taste it because he said, you know, it, when we sold it to European chocolatiers, uh, it was too expensive by the time they made it into chocolate for us to buy it back and mm. taste it. So we have no idea. Mm-hmm. It, we weren't getting anywhere close to the price they were getting once they sold the finished product. And I was like, wow, that's <laughs> that, that, that's hard to believe that a farmer would not be able to taste and enjoy their own uh, products. I, I wanted yeah, to ask you. Yeah, yeah go, go right ahead. ahead. No, go right oh, ahead. It's very, it's very typical in farming communities that they haven't seen the final product. Um, so that um, doesn't surprise me. And it's, and it is, um, it is, a, it is sad. And, you know, mm-hmm. one thing that I just want to point out is that because of all of this, um, the ex- people are really talking about the extinction of, t- of chocolate if we don't invest more in supporting these small-scale cocoa farmers. So we really need to think about the cost that we're paying um, for our chocolate and that if it's a real cost, um, because I can't imagine a world without chocolate. I know. It's me either. <laughs> I hate to say this, but that's the whole reason I go to the gym is so I can eat chocolate. So <laughs> right. it's very important, right. very important. So you are asking Costco to play a role in this situation. What could Costco as a company do to help with this? Yeah, so, you know, retailers have so much power in their supply chains, and um, they have the ability to demand from their suppliers to have sourcing practices that are not harming people and our planet, but they can even go beyond that. Um, And as us as consumers, we also need to consider the buying practices of retailers before deciding to support specific retailer establishments. So we have a role here, too, as consumers. But so Costco is a really great example of a retailer with purchasing power. They're the largest private label buyer of cocoa in this country. They are also known for its, treat, its good treatment of its domestic workforce, paying fair wages, generous benefits, which is really to be applauded. It's great. Um, they're doing what they should be there. But we also want them to leverage their powerful supply chains to address the impacts of the climate crisis and that historically volatile market I talked about by sourcing cocoa using strong certifications that are thinking about um, real pricing. So Costco really can have a meaningful impact on the livelihoods of cocoa communities if they are sourcing from small-scale farming organizations that are using um, our recommended third-party fair trade standards. Awesome. And I think that's a great way to, to leverage the power of the purse. So I hope that Fair World, uh, the Fair World Project is successful in bringing Costco on board with this. Now, your organization recently released a report that's entitled Fairness for Farmers, a report assessing the fair trade movement and the role of certification. There is so much that I want to ask you about the report, and we're going to do that throughout the show. But 
Let's start with defining fair trade for our listeners, because I think some people are fairly new to this concept and they're not sure exactly what it means. So talk to us about what fair trade means and give us a little bit of history of the movement. Okay, um, great. I would love to do that. I just want to preface that the history is a little bit long and a little bit complicated, and and I'm going to try to shorten it, but I just wanted to make sure everybody was aware. It's a little complex as well. But what I'd like to start out saying always is that fair trade is a movement. It's not a brand. People get that confused, and it's complex, as I mentioned. And it's a movement that stems from the um, desire to build a solidarity economy that really puts people and the planet before profits. It's about placing small-scale producers in the driver's seat in order to create a more just economy that benefits the 99%, not the 1%. So it's really a different model of doing business that demands an economy that works for everyone, not just a few. Um, so, and there's, uh, there's different viewpoints on how and where it started. Um, but for the U.S., fair trade really started in the 1940s and was called alternative trade. Church groups brought back handicrafts from refugees after World War II to help support those refugees. And then in Europe, in the 1960s, radical student groups that were fighting against colonialism and calling out income inequalities really saw alternative trade as a pathway forward to create more equality. So it was really a political, it became um, a political issue um, and a political movement. So, but, so then what happens in the 1980s when the Reagan administration imposed an embargo on all products from Nicaragua's Sandinista government, which many of us remember was a democratically elected party that was really aligned with the working people of Nicaragua, um, the Sandinistas reached out internationally for solidarity support. So people started traveling from everywhere. They came from U.S., Canada, U.K., and other places to help Nicaraguan farmers pick coffee and cotton um, and really support those peasant farmers and collectives. And they provided labor to help harvest and stand in solidarity alongside the Nicaraguans. Um, So what was happening was that people really believed that the Contras wouldn't harm people from the global north for fear of diplomatic backlash. And so this is really the start and, the, and where um, this movement came from, where it was part of a broader solidarity strategy using, um, using lev- really leveraging privilege to be, bear witness to what was happening. So then um, Equal Exchange began, which is a really amazing worker-owned cooperative that still exists today and is very strong today and one is, is one of the biggest alternative trading organizations um, really in the world. Um, They, in 1986, found a loophole in the embargo and and began um, importing Nicaraguan coffee through a Dutch solidarity organization. So their goal was to show their solidarity with Nicaraguan coffee farmers and really to support a grassroots movement challenging U.S. trade policy Um, and really to prove that business could be done with people in mind rather than just profits. Um, So then soon after that, um, after um, Equal Exchange started bringing in Nicaraguan coffee was when the first global fair trade certification of coffee from organized small-scale farmers in the global, global south started. So fair trade was really always about, or it started about small-scale producers gaining access to the global market for better livelihoods and to really build solidarity markets with partners in the global north. 
Mm-hmm. And so those original fair trade standards included several key principles that we still look at today and still think of fair trade as today, which is, and it goes beyond paying just a fair price to farmers. It includes long-term direct trading relationships um, and no exploitative labor, gender equality, democratic workplaces, safe working conditions and environmental sustainability and investment in community development projects. So part of the standard was an added premium above the purchase price that was paid by buyers to producers that would go into a fair trade fund to help build sustainable communities in producer countries. So the idea of this fair trade fund that was above the purchasing price was that it was completely producer-led through democratically elected communities. Um, So it was there to benefit the community, the community would decide what was to happen and what they needed. Um, And this was important because fair trade was working in global south and very marginalized communities and countries where governments were not providing basic community needs, such as clean water and um, different infrastructures. Um, so, and then fair trade was also about democrat- democratically run producer organizations, so at the business level. So everything they de- did was together democratically. Um, so it was really about working with organized small-scale producers on economic and community development in marginalized regions in the global south so that they would transform trade when globalization was really starting to take hold of our economic structures. Right, right. And I want to talk about this more. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll let you pick right up from there. And we're going to talk about not only the the status of the fair trade movement right now in 2018, but, but also the various certification programs and, and what we can glean from each of those labels and how to choose um, in accordance with our values. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I am so glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Dana Geffner, and she is the executive director of the Fair World Project. And we're talking about fair trade. Right before we went to break, Dana, I'm sorry I had to interrupt you so we could go to break, but you were talking about the history of fair trade. And I wanted to give you a chance to finish your thought on that. Great. Thank you. Yeah, there's a little bit more there because it is so complicated. Um, So, yeah, just to clarify again that the fair trade model was really to build markets for organized small-scale producers so that they could compete globally. Um, And it was to help to differentiate products produced by those organized small-scale producers so consumers could match their purchasing power to their values and help to build a more just economy and help really change imbalances of power in our global economic system. But today, uh, so things have changed, they've morphed, um, there's been a pretty deep divide in the movement within the United States, which um, in, um, in our opinion has really harmed the movement from moving forward in a meaningful and impactful way for small-scale producers. Um, and I'm going to try to explain it briefly, but it is where it gets really complicated, but I do think it's an important part of the history of the fair trade movement. Um, So in the 1980s, when the first certification uh, started, which was under the name Max Hevelar, which later became Fairtrade International, and it was the first global fair trade certification system with its main offices in Europe. Now, they have member organizations in the global north countries that license the use of the fair trade label to brands to use on their packaging if their producer organizations was certified to fair trade international standards. And then what happened in 2011, fair trade international's member for the United States, so their member in the United States that granted those license, that license to brands to use the label, um, their name at the time was Transfer USA. They decided to leave that global certification system. They're now called Fairtrade USA. They're the label that you see everywhere on packages everywhere. Um, you'd be most familiar with fair, um, that certification. They, when they left the global fair trade system, they did that because they had a different vision of what fair trade should be, um, which was more about labor protection on large scale plantations and in factories. So really changing the entire fair trade model and moving away from the main goal of market access for organized small scale producers. And those are very, two very different models, both equally important, but they really take different tools to get to the end result. Um, you know, small-scale producers face unique challenges not experienced by large-scale industrial agricultural operations. They lack access to resources, access to buyers and markets. Um, there's policies in place that marginalize these small-scale producers. So moving away from a solidarity mo- uh, model with small-scale producers really felt like a betrayal in the entire fair trade movement, and everyone really felt that. Um, and so today, we now can find fair trade labels in the marketplace on a variety of products, but those products were not necessarily produced by small-scale producers or by brands that are committed to working in solidarity with organized small-scale producers, So, which is one of the reasons my org- organization exists, Fair World Project, 
Um, so we, you know, our goal is to really develop tools to help guide purchasing decisions. Um, so again, I'd like to be clear though, labor protection and worker empowerment is just as important in creating a more just economy. It just takes different tools such as unions and worker associations rather than volunta- voluntary certifications for workers on large scale farms to be empowered. That makes perfect sense. And, and it is complicated, of course, but, um, but I'm so glad that you differentiated the two uh, models. And, and we'll talk about that more in just a few moments. But I, I do want to get to the report um, that you all created called Fairness for Farmers, a report assessing the fair trade movement and the role of certification, because there's so much that we can learn from going through that report. Before we dive into the various labels that you evaluated, talk to us a little bit about how you chose the labels that you would evaluate and which labels you did not include in the report. Yes, okay. So um, the report was focused on certification and verifications that are voluntary and third party that classified themselves as fair trade, um, with the primary beneficiaries being small scale farmers in the global, global south. Um, we also have produced, um, about a year and a half ago, we produced another report entitled Justice, Justice in the Fields which focuses on the role of farm worker justice certification, and that report evaluates seven different certifications. Um, so there are several, um, several eco-social eco labels that are not fair trade but are sometimes confused with fair trade. So we really wanted to analyze the labels that claimed fair trade. Um, we did not want to analyze labels created by the companies that use them, um, so we didn't look at any in-house programs um, such as cafe, Starbucks cafe practices, you know, those programs or body, the body shops um, community program. These programs are really created to benefit the companies that created them. So there's no third party um, that is creating these standards. Um, and so, um, um, so, and then the other thing we did not cover in the standards was uh, we did not look at standards for apparel even though agricultural raw materials for apparel, especially cotton, may be covered by the standards we evaluated here. Most programs have separate standards to trace ingredients through the com- complex apparel supply chains. So mm-hmm. we have worked on analyzing those standards and we'll be publishing some information on those standards in 2019. Excellent. Well, before we dive into the details of the fair trade labels your organization evaluated, I'd like for you to talk just a little bit about the recommendations and minimum expectations that the Fair World Project has for a few of the criteria that were in the report. You had geographical scope, product scope, brand eligibility criteria, and label ownership and governance. Just help our listeners kind of understand those minimum expectations, and then we're going to go right into talking about each of the labels that you evaluated. Okay, yeah, so we broke, so the minimum recommendation, minimum expectations around geographical scope was, we wanted to add geographical scope was what, because um, it's actually a controversial topic within the fair trade movement. Uh, as I mentioned, fair trade was originally created by and for small-scale producers from marginalized communities in the global south. This has changed, as I've mentioned, in the terms of size of production, but also in terms of location. Many fair trade certification agencies will certify production anywhere now. So as our world becomes more complex and integrated, standards have changed, and so we felt we needed to, um, to clarify. Again, we believe that there are many tools to be used 
that fair trade was meant to address the needs of small-scale producers in the global south and that they still need a differentiation in the marketplace. So the benefits of a fair trade label should still have that at its core. And then in terms of product scope, um, our minimum expectations for product scope is that fair trade identifies any agricultural product and handicraft product where the primary production is done by small-scale producers. Today, we see labels in the marketplace using the term fair trade where small-scale producers have not been part of at part of the production at all, um, as I mentioned previously. Um, an ex a clear example of this is the Fairtrade USA apparel and home goods standard that allows a Fairtrade label on a finished product when only the very large factory in the final stage of a complex apparel supply chain was audited. So this really causes confusion in the marketplace because, because it is a large factory be being called Fairtrade and no small-scale producer was being part of the production. And then with brand eligibility, um, so many certifications do not take into account what a brand does on every level. And there are some brands such as Nestle and Fife's that have terrible human rights abuses but are allowed to have one of their products or an ingredient in a product certified. So our expectation is that any brand or company that a his has a history of exploitation, whether it be human rights or environmental abuses, that they should be required to mitigate and make amends before carrying a certifica certification label for any product lines. And then we, um, on the label ownership and government, governance, um, I mentioned this a little bit previously, we also believe that programs should be owned and governed with the intended beneficiary having at least 50% formal stake through direct participation and democratically elected representatives. Got it. Well, those are those are excellent minimum recommendations and expectations. And so let's dive right in and talk about some of the labels and certification programs that you evaluated. Um, how did the label Fair for Life fare under your evaluation standards? Right. So Fair for Life is one of the certifications for small-scale farmers that we do recommend. They have strong fair washing policies that ensures that a label is only available to those brands most committed to fair trade practices. Um, so these policies include exclusion of brands with any unremedied history of labor and environmental exploitation. They have a high threshold of certified ingredients required to use a label. They have strong environmental standards that encourage organic or equivalent practices. They have strong long-term commitments, um, commitments from buyers, so buyers have to have three-year commitments. Um, and they, the requirement that brands continue, they have a requirement that brands continue to increase purchases of fair trade ingre um, ingredients. They also guarantee prices above mar market averages and supports direct um, producer negotiations of prices. Outstanding. Sounds like a, a label I want to look for. Now, um, talk to us about Fair Trade America. Help us understand how they fared. So Fair Trade America is, I talked about them, they, were, they are the member organization in the United States of Fair Trade USA. So they, once Fair Trade USA left that global system, um, Fair Trade America was created as a licensee and member of Fair Trade International in the U.S. So we recommend Fair Trade America. They have producer, producers have a very strong role in governance and decision making um, in that system. And democratic organization is required at every level of the program. So this is a really important and key aspect for us. 
This producer participation includes producer groups setting global minimum prices for fair trade products in many crops. The fair trade system excludes large-scale operations from certification to protect the markets of small-scale farmers. So they will only certify a crop that's large-scale if, if small-scale producers have not historically grown that crop. Um, the fair trade system also contains many of the elements expected of a fair trade program, including requiring transparency about future sourcing needs as a show of good faith. They have long-term commitments. Um, they support they support the General Assembly as the highest level of authority of a farmer association, and they have strong requirements for gender equity. Now, on the downside of fair trade, the fair trade standards, they do allow brands with ongoing human rights and environmental violations to use the label, and they allow the label on products with as little as 20% ingredients certified. So those are, short um, those are shortcomings. Um, that could result in fair washing. However, because producers have a strong role in determining those standards, which has led to strong standards overall, the fair trade, we do recommend Fair Trade America Great. as a good We're program. Gonna- Yep, we're going to take a quick commercial break here, but when we come back, there are several more fair trade labels that many of our listeners may have seen in the marketplace. We're going to talk about how they fared under the um, the evaluation that Fair World Project has just finished uh, completing. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And just in case you're just now tuning in, I'm going to catch you up. Our guest today is Dana Geffner, and she is the executive director of the Fair World Project. And they have just released a report called Fairness for Farmers, a report assessing the fair trade movement and the role of certification. And before the break, we were talking about Fair Trade America. But I really want to make sure that we understand the distinction, Dana, and I want you to help us with this, between Fair Trade America and Fair Trade USA, because our listeners are going to see both labels. Help us understand mm-hmm. the difference. All right. So I know I wish that I could show up a little picture of what the different certifications are. But um, so Fair Trade America, which I was just talking about. So when we say fair trade, when it comes to Fair Trade America, fair, fair trade is one word, all one word. When we talk about Fair Trade USA, it's two words, Fair Trade USA. So there are two, there are two different certifications. Fair Trade America is a member organization of the global Fair Trade International System, which is the ones that set the standards that is producer-owned. Fairtrade USA, they left the global system in 2011 and became their own standalone standard. They do it. They really, um, they create their own standards, and they are not tied to any global system. So Got I hope it. that makes sense. And, and Fairtrade USA is the one that people are probably seeing the most of on the shelves, um, and I have a lot to say about that certification. Um, Go for it. Do so, that now, Dana. Yeah. We are ready because okay. I do see it a lot on the shelves. So help us understand how Fair Trade USA differs from some of the other labels. Talk to us. Okay, so I'm going to be brief on the, my explanation here, but later on I have some other things about um, about them. But I wanted to be brief because I want to get to some of the other certifications as well. Um, but I do it. have a lot to say to them down the line. So, so the Fair Trade USA is a label that is really the only label that we recommend to approach with caution. We actually don't recommend this certification at this point. They have some significant shortcomings, um, and you know I think that you know when you start seeing a label all over the place, we have to question why is that you know fair trade is very difficult it's not supposed to be simple so um, there's they have some similarities to the fair trade system since they came out of that system Um, but um, so for example they allow brands with ongoing human rights and environmental violations to use the label and they allow the label on products with as little as 20% ingredients um, certified in a multi-ingredient product so again both of those are significant weaknesses however Unlike the fair trade system, fair trade USA is neither owned nor governed by producers. So they are corporate run. They have corporate people that sit on their board that create standards, which makes these weaknesses even more concerning. Um, and other notable gaps in their standards include a lack of required long-term commitment by buyers. They don't guarantee pricers' input into pricing, um, and they don't require democratically organized entities. And they have no safeguards to protect market for smallholders, which means they'll certify any products even if it is a crop that was traditionally grown by smallholders. So that's all I'm going to say about Fair Trade USA right now. All right. Now talk to us about Natureland Fair certification. 
Okay, so Natural and Fair is um, is not in in the U.S. Um, market right now. They're, but the, we believe that they're an extremely strong certification, um, and they they're out of Germany. They're very strong in the German market, um, but we're hoping that they're going to come to this market um, soon. Um, they are the only standard that requires organic certification, and Naturaland Fair. So Naturaland Fair was really developed for to go on top of their organic standard, and their organic standard is stronger than even um, the EU organic standard. So they are also owned by its farmer members, and they exclude brands with human rights and environmental violations from participating. They require the environmental stand. I've already mentioned that, but um, organic standards are very high, mm-hmm. um, and they have a very high threshold of certified ingredients before the label can even be used, and they prioritize marginalized small-scale farmers. So that's why we wanted to look at Natural and Fair. Um, we're a little bit excited about that certification, even though it's not in the market yet. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Now talk to us about the certification called Small Producer Symbol. So, yeah, so the Small Producer Symbol, they came – this. This certification came out of the Fair Trade International System, that global system that I talked about. Mm -hmm. And it was a group of farmers that wanted to start a label that really differentiated small, organized small producer products in the marketplace. Because even the Fair Trade International System was certifying crops that were on large plantations. Um, so they certify tea, cut flowers, and bananas on large-scale plantations. So the small, so the, the group of farmers really felt that this, things were getting too complicated in the, in the marketplace and they wanted to develop their own um, symbol. So it was developed by and for small-scale producers in the Global South, and they are really the only label that excludes individual large farms. So they do not allow, they will never certify a large farm. They believe it's a different model. Um, and it's really, it's notable for its focus on building capacity in the small-scale producer sector. Um, and brands that use the label must also meet a high bar with a required code of conduct for all business practices and a commitment to continually increase purchases of small producer symbol products. Um, so the standards were, one of the things, um, the standards were less specific and rigorous on labor environmental requirements than some of the other programs, but they have since just published their report. Uh, they've since republished um, their standards that do have stronger um, policies for those standards, and we have, it is not part of our report, but we will be updating. Um, and we have to all know that standards are continuously changing and morphing, so um, they're living, breathing documents. So Sure, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and I want to cover one more certification uh, that you guys covered in your report, and that's the World Fair Trade Organization. How did they do when you evaluated them? Yeah, so the World Fair Trade Organization, they have a guarantee system that's pretty new. They started out as a membership organization, and they are really one of the founders of the fair trade movement back in the 80s as well. Um, but they're, they're not a traditional certification program, and they're very difficult to put sort of in the same bucket as the others. Because they're a membership organization, they only allow brands to be part of their organization, to be go, to go through their guarantee system if everything the brand does is around fair trade. Um, so it's very different than a product certification. It's actually a brand, more of a brand guarantee system. 
Um, so that's an important distinction. Um, yeah. they, and because of that, their standards are a little bit different, and they use a combination of peer reviews and third-party audits. They have strong elements that require price negotiations based on transparent information sharing, um, and they're owned by their members um, and their businesses that are committed to fair trade. So they, some of their shortcomings are around environmental standards. They don't have regulations around GMOs, um, and they have a less emphasis on democratic structures. But again, because the members are producers and business committed to fair trade, we do recommend that, that standard. You know, your report makes a really strong case that certifications are only as strong as their enforcement, which makes perfect sense. So talk to us about various fair trade certification audits and how they trace the supply chain um, for products bearing their label. You know, which certifications do the best job of enforcing their standards? Right. Okay. So that's right. Enforcement really is key, a key part of standards. Um, and what exactly enforcement means has shifted a lot as the meaning of fair trade has shifted. So for so long, so much of what we're thinking about with small-scale farmer fair trade is more kind of in line with the organic certification model. You build a strong framework, you make sure that there are systems for transparency, for internal accountability, and then there's verification along the line that the, bar, um, that the buyers are following the standards. Small-scale farmer fair trade focuses on supporting farmers entering the marketplace and is really trying to correct the wrongs of the marketplace itself. So, but then when fair trade labels get applied to big plantations and factories, it's really a different thing. For one major thing, it's really, really hard to get to the bottom of labor problems in just a few days long annual audit. If your boss is, you know, for example, if your boss is harassing you on the job, what are you going to do? You need to be able to talk to someone you can trust. Um, so I'd like to highlight an example of weak enforcement and what can happen if auditors are not trained or that there is a perceived conflict of interest. So just this last month, we worked with the International Labor Rights Forum to call attention to Fair Trade USA's weak enforcement mechanisms. Um, Fair Trade USA is the main certification that we see on the shelves. I already talked about them. Um, you see them everywhere, um, and you're seeing them more and more on fruits and vegetables from Costco to Whole Foods to even more conventional markets. Um, and so what happened was this last April, Fair Trade USA decided to certify a Honduras melon plantation that is owned by the largest global fruit brand, Fipes. And this plantation in Honduras has had a long legacy of labor violations and human rights abuses. Uh, these violations have even been documented by the U.S. Department of Labor, the International Labor um, labor Organization, and the Honduran Farm Worker Union staff, and the international press. So it's been very, very well documented. Um, and the documentation that has, we've seen on the plantation was failure to pay minimum wage, exposure of workers to hazardous agrochemicals, illegal firings of pregnant women, um, blacklisting, harassment with illegal dismissal of union members. So again, this has all been well documented for over a, de a decade, and really a simple Google search would have shown that this has been documented. But Fairtrade USA decided, um, but okay, so one of the things is Fairtrade USA doesn't require a farm workers union to be present during auditing. That's a big deal in a situation like this when you have workers who have a long, difficult relationship with man management. Um, so, so what happens is some stranger from another country shows up and asks you questions about your um, job. 
I mean, are you going to trust him or yeah. do you just know that other workers have gotten fired for saying the wrong thing? Yep, that's a so, big deal. And I know that, you know, there's a lot more that we could talk about that in, in, in just a moment. We're going to take a quick commercial break here in a minute. But when we do, I'd like for our listeners to open up a new tab in their web browser and, and Google Fair World Project. Check out Dina's website, her organization's website. Um, keep listening to us here on voiceamerica.com. But open up a new tab and, and Google for uh, Fair World Project so you can see where to find this information and check out their report because, you know, we're able to touch the tip of the iceberg, but I'd love for our listeners to dig in deep and read your report. So don't go away, folks. We much more with Dana right after this commercial break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I have a secret to share with all of our listeners. Okay, are you ready for this, guys? A big secret. If you're like me, your body is in the present, but your ears kind of live on Spotify, guess what? You're going to be able to listen to Go Green Radio on Spotify very soon. That's coming in just a couple of weeks. So I'll let you know when that's a thing, but it's going to be a thing, and you'll be able to listen to Go Green Radio wherever you listen to Spotify. So excited about that. So we have Dana Geffner on the show. She's the executive director of the Fair World Project. And Dana, right before we went to commercial, I, I'm sorry I had to interrupt you, but you were talking um, about you know, the, the case for enforcing the certifications. And I want to let you finish what you were talking about there. 
Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. So, yeah, I was talking about Fair Trade USA certifying a melon, a Honduras melon farm plantation, even though there was a ton of um, recorded violations that were well documented. And so, I just wanted to briefly finish what happened with that was that Fair Trade USA did just decertify this farm because of all of the allegations that they found, but they only did it because there was a coalition of organizations, including us, that called on them to decertify, and thousands of consumers wrote to them. So us as consumers actually can have a voice here. Um, this incident clearly shows that weak standards along with weak enforcement is actually undermining organizing efforts. And I don't want to go too much more in on the specifics in this issue. It's all documented on our website, fairworldproject.org, if listeners are interested to learn more. But one final thought on this is that because of these weak standards and weak enforcements, it weakens the entire movement because then people do not trust a label any longer. So we really do have to hold standard setters accountable in order to build trust, which is why we do the work that we do. Right on. Couldn't have said it better. That's a very important Mm -hmm. point. Now, you've mentioned this phrase a few times during the show, and I want to give you a chance to make sure that our listeners understand what it means when you say democratic organizations are essential an essential element of fair trade. Tell us what that yeah. means and which labels are most trustworthy on this issue. Yeah, okay. So yeah, so fair trade, as I've mentioned, fair trade move, um, the fair trade movement um, grew out of farmer cooperatives in Latin America. So these are democratic institutions. Farmer members have a vote over the board of directors and the business of the co-op, depending on how they have structured themselves. It's a big deal because these small-scale farmers are business people. They're building capacity in their communities. They're making investments and choosing, choosing their own path. Um, and then the allocation of the fair trade Premium is one part of this. Farmers vote on how to allocate the money, whether their needs are immediate, dispersed to members as additional payment, invest in needed facilities for processing, composting, etc. Um, or maybe it's needed for community needs, such as clean water schools and health clinics. Um, but they get to decide that. That's the important piece. And so um, when we talk about fair trade getting applied to plantations and factories, What we see from evidence on the ground and more and more research by NGOs and academics alike is that organized workers, usually in the form of unions, are key to giving workers a voice and the ability to improve their livelihoods. So finally, we believe that um, those principles of participatory democracy should also apply to certifiers. So for an example, Fairtrade International, the main certifier around the globe, recently raised cocoa prices, as I mentioned. Um, They're 50% farmer-owned. They're taking that leadership position and raising prices in large part because they have those voices on their board, calling out for them to do that. Um, And then when you look at the small producer simple, which I talked about, they are wholly farmer-led, and they've had that same minimum price um, that Fairtrade International increased it to since two, um, 2010. And re- it's really a concrete example of why producer leadership and control is so important. Awesome. Awesome. And and which labels do you recommend looking for? You said Fairtrade so International. Fairtrade International. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fairtrade International, the small producer symbol, um, Naturaland Fair, the um, World Fair Trade Organization are the ones that we would recommend on that. Great. We have a lot of other things that I want to talk about, but I want to give you a minute um, to make some direct recommendations for our listeners, for those who are like, 
yes, I want to be a part of this. I want to get involved. I want to do the right thing. What recommendations do you have for them? Yeah, so first, I'd re- I really recommend visiting our website, fairworldproject.org. We have a lot of resources there um, that you can share with people that you can use to help making purchasing decisions. Um, but then also in general, when shopping, what I'd like to tell people is to be wary of made-up, non-verified claims. So you'll see a stamp on a package that says direct trade. Um, and direct trade has, there's no real standards behind direct trade. It's just something that people are trying to put on their package. So be wary of that. Um, look for reputable, reputable third-party certifications that really are producer-led, especially for products like chocolate and coffee, where both really bad and really good options do exist. And I think most importantly, look beyond the label at who's actually making your product. So you know, find out who the parent company is. Are they? Um, really caring about the people that are making their products. And you can, if you do some research, you can really see that. Um, there's a lot of wording that companies use, so you do have to be wary. Um, but again, we have those resources to, t- to help ask some of those questions. Um, so yeah, those are some of the things that I would recommend. Love that. I, that's great, Dana. Now, since this is Go Green Radio, let's talk just a minute about the environmental criteria that you evaluated when you assessed the various fair trade certifications. Tell us which labels do the best job of addressing environmental issues. Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the things I think most consumers don't really know about fair trade certification is that it does include some environmental criteria, but um, just because a product is fair trade does not mean it is organic. Um, so, uh, the pro- um, but, but what people do need to understand that if it is organic, producers do receive a premium. So they receive another premium above um, if, it's, if it wasn't organic. So most of the fair trade certifications include some ban on GMOs, um, ranging from covering the certified crop to covering anything grown on the farm. The certifications also include prohibitions on some of the worst pesticides as well as some rules around how to treat water resources. Um, but really the strongest way that fair trade invests in environmental issues is through the organic premium and through strong minimum prices. Um, and by providing additional money per pound for certified organic crops, fair trade helps promote these kinds of good environmental practices. And that's important because growing organic crops takes more work, and every bit of land stewardship takes more work. Um, so to return to the cocoa farmers we started with as an example, there's so much deforestation there, and part of that is driven by farmers not earning enough money. So they right. try to expand to take out forested to land in order more. to grow just a bit more, right? Makes right. perfect sense, Dana. And I am so glad that we were able to have you on. I could talk for, for hours with you on Fair Trade, but thank you so much for joining us. To our listeners, thank you for joining us as well. Get out on Fair World Project's website, fairworldproject.org. We're going to be here same place same time next week with more Go Green Radio. But until then, I hope you all have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.